0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health & Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health & Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community... Because I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. And when we relate to one another in small enough groups where we know one another by name or at least by face, we cooperate, we collaborate, and we love to hang out together. We love to do all kinds of things together, whether it's sewing circles or poker games, whether it's sports events or cultural events. And what we really love to do, we love to eat together in circles. We are tribal. We're meant to be tribal. And we're meant to be with each other in kindness and love. At the very same time, it's imperative that we remain aware that there is a very small percentage of us who are very different. They are dominant predators. They have been this way since we came out of the caves. They were the ones who ruled the gangs, who eventually got themselves this grand title of king, and then they made this great deal with the church so that they ruled by divine right, so that if you went against the king, you went against God, and thereby they got to have so many people on our planet as subjects. But we changed the game with our revolution. We changed the game by overthrowing the king. We had the nerve to go against the church, and we became citizens instead of subjects. Citizens in a democracy. One person, one vote— and a republic, every one of us is equal before the law. Very different from the system where the king had absolute power. But there are still those people who would be dictators rather than kings and who would rule over us. So we must remember that democracy and republic is an experiment. Our experiment that we began here with our revolution was the first one since the Greeks and the Romans. And they lost their republic. They lost their democracy. And we should not be allowed to lose ours. Democracy and republic are fragile institutions. And we must remain aware of the possibility that if we don't stay awake, if we don't vote, we could lose. I'm critically aware of the fact that 70% of us Americans right now are living paycheck to paycheck. We are struggling to put food on the table to pay the rent. We may not have the money, if a major appliance breaks, to replace it. These are very hard times. And these hard times are being brought on by those who would rule us. An oligarchy. We cannot allow that to happen so that even though you're struggling, I ask you to come out and vote when the time is right for voting. Stay awake. Stay aware. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today, we have with us on mind, body, health, and politics, Dr. Catherine McLean. It's a privilege to have her here because she is one of the founding members of the present psychedelic renaissance. She has done a lot of her work at Johns Hopkins University, and she has published a great deal. Just go to Google, look up Catherine McLean, and you'll find plenty of information, and I hope you do. This is a person you want to know about, you want to know about her work, and go to her website as well. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Catherine, I believe you're a pharmacologist by training. Is that correct?
1: Well, some would say psychopharmacologist. You have to add that psychology part to it because yes. I used to joke that when I was at Hopkins, I should only be trusted in taking care of someone else if they were on a very high dose of a psychedelic drug. In that case, I'm the expert. I'm the person you want in the room with you. So psychopharmacologist.
0: Psychopharmacologist, like my dear friend Nick Cozy. I imagine you know him. I do. Yes. Um, how did you become? How did you get interested in becoming a psychopharmacologist, give us a little history and then we'll get into the meat and potatoes.
1: Well, the very short answer is I self-experimented. I was fascinated by what psychedelic drugs could do to the mind and brain. And I went to a, an Ivy League college called Dartmouth, which incidentally was the first place Jack Cornfield took LSD back in the day. And Dartmouth has a very interesting history of its kind of above-ground image, an intellectual, somewhat conservative, beautiful setting in the middle of the woods of New Hampshire, and an undercurrent of radicalism. And one way to express that is to experiment on your own mind. So I tried everything I possibly could, and I still managed to excel, and went on to get my PhD studying meditation. So at the time, when I was doing my PhD work with the Shamatha Project out in California, um, psychedelics were still very taboo. And then around 2006, Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins published his first paper on psilocybin and a little light bulb went off in my head. And I said, that's where I'm going next. And the powers that be and all of the forces beyond my control, including my own perseverance brought me to Hopkins where, uh, the tables were turned. Instead of doing self-experimentation, I got to sit in the room with people who themselves were submitting themselves to this experiment of what happens when a human being takes a high dose of a psychedelic.
0: And when you refer to a high dose, tell us which psychedelic and what the dose is.
1: Sure. So at Hopkins, we are mostly studying psilocybin, which is one of the main chemicals in magic mushrooms. And a high dose, we tested around 25 to 30 milligrams per 70 kilograms, which means in terms of dried magic mushrooms, for anyone out there who knows this, it's about four to five grams. Now, I used to think that was a heroic dose, in the words of Terrence McKenna. Uh, Since then, people have really pushed the limit of what a high dose is, but I still think five grams is usually enough for most people.
0: Now, if I draw the analogy to LSD, there's an amount of micrograms of LSD where one has a significant change of consciousness, but is still able to do inner work, like work on the ego, and perhaps even experience ego death, which you and I have, have have done. There's a dose above that with LSD where you go right past, zooming past the ego level, right into cosmic consciousness. I relate to those two different states quite differently. You want to comment on that, please?
1: Sure. Um, So I would say that we were right on the precipice of that boundary at Hopkins. Some people were able to stay aware of the room, the guides in the room, their body, their own biography, and dip their toes into cosmic consciousness. And some people went a little bit over that edge. So I would say some people, depending on their body weight and their experience, most people had never tried a psychedelic before in our studies. Some people went straight into cosmic consciousness. And the lovely thing about that is they were in a really safe place to do that. So with two guides in the room, music, um, a lovely setting, uh, no way to hurt themselves, uh, that was a completely safe and uh potentially awesome experience to have. Of course, not everyone loved it, but for the most part, we were kind of balancing that space between awareness of consensus reality and what you call cosmic consciousness. We called it mystical consciousness at Hopkins.
0: Now, in my experience, when I'm in that, what we might say, lower space, right below cosmic consciousness or mystical consciousness, that's where the action is for me in terms of making changes to my inner state, to looking at the way I communicate with people, to looking at my own personal fears, to looking at my life, to being creative, perhaps, if I'm working on a project. And that material, I'm able, I'm able to either take some notes on for later reference, or if I use a recorder, make some comments, and I get some good takeaway Whereas when I go straight into cosmic consciousness, it's a wonderful experience, but I don't feel like I get much to bring back with me other than that I had this cosmic experience. It's more like, almost like a ride in uh, Coney Island where it's a fantastic ride, but what do I get that I can use in daily experience? Do you relate to those two ways that I'm talking about or is that idiosyncratic?
1: I, I do relate to it. And the potentially somewhat fascinating thing that we found is that in the way that we prepared people, we used Bill Richard's mantra, trust, let go, be open. People had the freedom to fully surrender to that greater experience, the, the beyond, um, above, under, and What we suggested is that people try not to take notes or remember anything. And then at the end, they would tell us everything they could remember. So not until the very end of the session. And then through writing, through discussions with us, and through many scientific measures, we could get at what was remembered, perhaps unconsciously, subconsciously, or superconsciously, that might be normally lost to a recreational drug user.
0: In my experience, again... Taking these doses, these what you call high doses, four to five grams of of mushrooms, I would relate that to maybe 250 micrograms of LSD. Does that sound about right to you?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about the numbers. I would say probably about 200 to 300, depending on the person. And, you know, in the original studies, we gave people the 30 milligram dose And in most studies since the original studies, we've backed that off a bit. So we now try to aim for 20 to 25 milligrams, unless you're dealing with a demographic that might have a blunted response to serotonin drugs, either through the use of alcohol or opiates or SSRIs. Sometimes you need to push the boundary of what the serotonin system is able to do, just given what it's already been exposed
0: to. So you're talking milligrams because you're using specially created psilocybin for your research, whereas the rest of the public is dealing with dry mushrooms, and that's why you translate it into grams of four to five grams for us, correct?
1: Correct. That's correct.
0: Yes. And the two substances, LSD and psilocybin, most of the research that's going on around the United States now is with psilocybin. Uh i I don't know i'm I'm not aware of much going on with l s d because l s d evidently still has the stigma going back to the sixties that psilocybin doesn't have. Is that the reason or why isn't there more research in your opinion going on with l s d
1: Well, I think there are three main reasons other people may have a different view of it. The first is that yes, the stigma is real the taboo is real um Bill, I think it's Bill Richards used to joke that people have a hard time spelling psilocybin, so they can't form an immediate knee-jerk defense against it. LSD is just part of our lexicon, and it conjures way too many associations that aren't really that relevant. Um, Psilocybin also only lasts about six hours, so you can fit it into a workday. If you're showing up at 8 a.m. at Hopkins for your session, you can go home for dinner with your family if you're talking about LSD, it could last 12 hours for some people. It's a very long journey, especially for your first time. And if you're halfway through an LSD journey and you decide you don't like it, you've got a lot of territory to cover before you're back home. So that's the second reason. The third reason I would say is that there is some scientific evidence that dose and frequency of LSD use is connected more to some of the scarier side effects that um, have been reported, um, and it's again, it's a careful balance. Obviously, I don't want to reinvigorate the propaganda from the sixties and seventies. But it is true that if someone is taking recreational doses of LSD, you know, more than a hundred times, they will have more flashback experiences, hallucinations during their regular life. They may have trouble integrating the experience, and we just haven't found that as much with magic mushrooms.
0: I mentioned to you before we began that uh, I'm doing a book on uh, negative adverse effects, and that the reason I'm doing it is in part because the pharmaceutical companies are famous for hiding or sanitizing their unwanted complications of medicine. That's the terminology I use instead of side effects, because I think side effects is a sanitized way of saying an unwanted complication or an adverse effect. And I think it's 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 imperative that those of us who are doing work in the field of psychedelic science be totally transparent about the good, the bad and the ugly and let the public know rather than play the game that the pharmaceutical companies play in order to make more money. For for many of us, I know this, you included, this isn't about making more money. This is about bringing something to humanity that has great potential for healing and creativity. you agree with absolutely,
1: that? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, my, my legacy from Hopkins was a finding that psilocybin increases openness. Around 2011, I took data from all of the psilocybin sessions that had been run before I arrived, and I was looking at changes in personality. Now, in the early papers, Roland had reported that there were no changes in personality, and my statistical analysis basically confirmed that But I kind of drilled down into each personality domain, and I found that people who had had a mystical experience uh, on the high dose showed an increase in openness, not in any other domain of personality. And openness is connected to imagination, creativity, uh, wanting to create art and beauty, being more open to other people's feelings and emotions, um, and being more liberal, progressive. So in a sense my finding proved exactly what everyone was worried about with the hippies, which is that it does make you want to vote in a different way. It does change your ability to be rigid and stubborn and set in your ways. So this was very exciting for me. And, um, you know, in terms of adverse effects, uh, there is a downside to being more and more and more open. One could say that there is a limit at which we would want people being as open as possible to any idea that comes along. So that's a very, I think, subtle uh, point to make about psilocybin. Um, I like to share one example of something that, uh, you know, people might be called to change their vocation, and we might think that's a really good thing. We had one young man who was working for the Department of Defense, figuring out how to operate drones to drop bombs on other countries. And after his psilocybin experience, he quit his job and became a yoga teacher in Thailand. So I consider that a plus one for psilocybin. So psilocybin took someone out of a vocation of violence and brought him to a vocation that was more peaceful. Um, but if you think about the entire public of the United States, you know how many people are really willing to take that jump into a reality that might beg them to change many things about their life? Could be good. It could be very disruptive. Um, so that's kind of like the medium domain of an adverse effect, but I would not consider it an adverse effect. You know, it might make you want to change your life. Now, the third category, I think, is what we should kind of talk about, which is what happens when someone's life is really disrupted and how are we going to talk about that transparency? Yes.
0: Before we get to those kind of adverse effects, I'd like to talk a little bit about the one that you just mentioned, because I was one of those people. uh, I took psychedelics in school just like you did. But I was in school in the 1950s and 1960s, and I took uh, 400 morning glory seeds after reading Leary and Alpert's Tibetan Book of the Dead, (laughs) where they said, you know, eat a morning glory seeds, heavenly blue or pearly gates. And my friend and I went out and bought all the morning glory seeds we possibly could and proceeded to eat 400 of them each and had an experience which definitely changed the course of my life. I learned a great deal uh, about life and and living and also about how these materials change the course of your life, just as you just described that gentleman who went from working for the government to becoming a yoga teacher, because it it had an effect on uh, ending my academic career. I was teaching at the University of Michigan. I did do one year at Stanford after that, but that was the end of my academic career. And that was in part because... Of this opening up, but I want to distinguish between what you said about opening up to ideas and whatever you meant by maybe too open and opening up emotionally. I don't know if there is such a thing as being too open emotionally. I mean, the price I pay for being open emotionally is I get hurt easily, but I don't die from it. It's just sort of like a sensitivity that I've gotten used to. I cry easily and I I sort of cringe easily. But so what? I don't run away, therefore, or have anything bad happen to me. It's just sort of a reaction that happens as a result of being open. So comment on that.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So You know, the way I like to think about it is, and we would ask people this, we would say, you know, if you have an experience that challenges your beliefs, that challenges your sense of purpose, that gives you a new vision of reality, how are you going to respond to that? And some people might say, great, I would welcome it. You know, I feel stuck in my life. I'm open to whatever's coming. And other people would say, you know what? I think I'm going to wait and not participate in this study right now, because I kind of really like my life the way it is, and I'm not quite ready to stir things up. And so the way I see it is it depends on the person. Are they willing to put in a year, five years, 10 years of searching and understanding about the mind after the experience, if they have a really existentially disruptive uh, psilocybin session? So... I can speak personally. I didn't have a disruptive experience from psilocybin. Um, I had life experiences that really shook everything I knew about reality. And I was compelled to understand that more. So I left academia. um, I became a mother. I traveled the world. I would not change anything about that. But there are people who aren't like me who might say, wow, I really wish I could reverse time and go back to when I wasn't so (laughs) open-minded.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to grasp what you're talking about. It sounds to me like it's fear-based.
1: Yes, I am talking about fear.
0: And, and I am very suspicious of anything that's fear-based because I believe that fear is something that we need to sleuth out and search out and evaporate so that we live without fear. I don't find fear to be a helpful guide. In living,
1: Well, I happen to agree with you. I have found every corner of my psyche where fear resides and I have gone and I've shined a light there and said, okay, fear, like, let's, let's talk, you know, let's figure this out. Let's meet each other. Let's befriend each other. Um, but you know, if someone is ready to have that confrontation, then that's different than if it's kind of sprung on them. So I talk about, you know, informed consent. Um, There was a Tibetan teacher who said once, uh, if you haven't started meditating, don't. But if you've started, you have to see it all the way through. And it's a little (laughs) bit like I was psychedelics. You know, if you haven't started, think about the things that you're afraid of changing, afraid of losing, afraid of being different. And once you've committed, then for better or for worse, the path is going to keep calling you to explore more and more. And so it's more just, it's not necessarily a validation of the fear. It's just recognizing that fear is so present for so many people now. And before a doctor says, try this drug for your depression, we have to ask people, you know, what are you afraid of? What, what is worse than depression? What are you more afraid of than not being depressed? It's an interesting well, koan for people.
0: Well, for me, the basic fundamental of all fear is the fear of death. That's what I always go to when I'm doing my search and destroy, and by the way, we're very kindred spirits on that. I do the, I call them search and destroy missions when I'm looking under every little part of the the rug in my psyche, where there might be some fear lurking that might, you know, have some effect on me, and I'm looking for it and smelling it out. And I always end up, no matter when I drill down, with the fear of death. And so what I learned early on in my psychedelic experiments through the ego death part is simply to do what you said bill richards do said just accept so i let i lay down i let myself die and so far every time eventually i'm back uh, <laughs> but one but one day i won't be and okay that's all right as well and and you came back also from that Experience that you had that started on the plane near the Las Vegas uh, airport, as I recall. <laughs> it's true.
1: You know, I mean, that was my first, I would say, um, unconsented death. I've consented to many deaths since then, and they keep getting better and better. So I would say to people, you know, the first time you die, it's really terrifying, and then it gets less and less scary the more you practice. And psychedelics are perfect death practice. And better that it happened for the first time in a place where you feel safe and loved, whether it's with friends, probably not, maybe with a doctor, you know, I'm very suspicious of the medical community being interested in psychedelics, but there are good doctors out there. So if that's the first death experience you have in a clinic, so be it. Um, But keep looking, keep asking yourself, you know, how can I die safely and lovingly more and more to my fear? And there are many ways to do that. As you know, meditation, um, wilderness fasts. So um, my vision for people, the planet, is that people find the safest, most kind way they can practice letting go of the things that scare them, whether that's psychedelics or something else. And I think that's maybe the key to helping people get get free of that fear, just practicing it.
0: Catherine, I, I, I think I can tell by the way you're talking that you know as well as I, and please correct me if I'm mistaken, that the government is right to be afraid of these medicines.
1: I think they they are are. right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Aren't they? Because these medicines have the power to get people not only to think for themselves, but to make changes in their lives that they would have been afraid of making without the medicine. Isn't that correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the most amazing thing that psychedelics do is empower the individual to make decisions for themselves and to feel confident that no matter what happens, you can't be destroyed. You know your body can be hurt, it can be unpleasant, you can have difficult emotions, you might lose loved ones, but there is a there is a part of you that will will be indestructible through all of that and I'm not talking about the soul or any kind of religious belief, but it's just an inherent There's nothing that a greater power that exists in the material world can take from you. That's a very provocative statement. Most Americans would be like, what are you talking about? You know, the IRS could come and take away my home if I don't pay my taxes. Uh, uh, My son might go off to war because he doesn't have a job after high school. And those fears are real. And also the powers that be want us to believe those stories so that we stop asking questions and making decisions for ourselves. And psychedelics, you know, are going to open that door for a lot of people. So I can see right now that the government and the pharmaceutical companies are figuring out a way, like, what's the best way to control this medicine before people realize that it's uncontrollable?
0: I think the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you know where that expression comes from? The cat's out of the bag. No. (laughs) Years ago, when, uh, People used to go to the market, they lived you know out remotely in little hamlets, and they'd go into the market to sell things. and one of the things they would sell were rabbits, and because people like to eat rabbit. But when they didn't have rabbit, they would bring an old cat or two and put it in the bag. But every once in a while, while the deal was being transacted, the cat would jump out of the bag and they would see, "I'm getting fooled, it's not a rabbit, it's a cat." And then we got the expression, the cat's out of the bag. I think the cat's out of the bag. And one of the problems, I'm very delighted to say that the medical community, I share your views on that as well, as well as the pharmaceuticals are going to have uh, have one of their biggest problems is the fact that psychedelic mushrooms can be grown in everybody's kitchen. You don't need a laboratory like you do with LSD and MDMA and various other things. You just can grow just like marijuana. That's the big problem the, the government has with marijuana. Anybody can grow it in their backyard. So I think we've got an ace in the hole. I want to comment to you on some things I, I tell people when I'm teaching about a bit about psychedelics, and I want uh, your opinion, your and, and brutal opinion, if you think I'm mistaken in any way here. Um, one of them is I believe that the amount of time spent before the session in drilling down on intention and where you want to go, is worthy of doing some of the time. What I mean by some of the time, I think there's also a place for going into the uh, a journey of experiment with no agenda whatsoever and just see what happens. But I think both of them are worthwhile endeavors, a full intention with you know, as well as open. And the second thing is that I say that the experience is like going into a personal gold mine. You go in there and you take your time and you pull back nuggets that you then polish up in the days, weeks, and months to come. These are not panaceas. It's not like you eat this stuff and all of a sudden you, you it's a panacea. It may be, and you may be, get some wonderful mystical stuff, but there may also be that there's a lot, there's work to do on what you took out of the mine. Does that make sense to you, what I just said?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you just described the Hopkins model, and the Hopkins model is not you know, magically created out of thin air. We prepared people for one to two months ahead of time before their first experience, and some people didn't get their high dose until they'd been with us for another month. So some people are getting three months of preparation, and then we work with people so, afterwards. Hold on. Stop
0: right there. Yes. I've got to un- I want to thank you for allowing me to interrupt I want to underline in red, in red, in red, two to three months of preparation. Thank you. At least.
1: At least. I would say that we were only limited by the protocol. You know, we had a budget. We had a certain amount of time. We had papers to write. We had grants to get. And in my experience, so I started, a man, um, a young man approached me and he said, I'm thinking about having a first mushroom experience. And I said, okay, well, I don't sit for people. I've got two little kids. I can't be bothered, you know, with your experiments, but I'll help you prepare. For one year, I worked with this man to figure out why he wanted to take mushrooms. And he made so many changes in his life to clear up the space so that he would be ready to take mushrooms. And then the year came around and he said, "You know what? I kind of like what I'm doing with my life. I'm going to wait a little longer and keep preparing." So, I consider that a success story, you know. He'll take mushrooms at some point. It'll be the right time, but um, there's no such thing as too much preparation. And now, of course, if you're using preparation to avoid something out of fear, that's different. But you know, just a heartfelt wish to figure out why you want to do this thing that everyone's talking about, and find for yourself what your reason is. That's that's the gold. So with the right intention, you go in, you have your experience, and then what the second part you talked about we call integration. So how am I going to weave this into my life? And you're right days, weeks, months, in my case, years. You know, There are some experiences I had 10 years ago that suddenly it hits me. I'll be in the backyard and realize like, oh, that's what ayahuasca meant. Oh, that's what this medicine meant. And that's, I mean, I find that really exciting. It's like an ongoing discovery. Um, Now, again, most people wouldn't want to hear that. You mean I could take mushrooms and it'll take me 10 years to figure my stuff out? It's like, Maybe, if you're lucky.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which of the various psychedelics is your personal favorite?
1: So I'm unusual, and I have psychedelic experiences with MDMA. And I would say MDMA is a sacrament to me. Um, I know that it's a drug. I know it's a synthetic drug. It's man-made. It's used for medicine. But the first time I took MDMA, it was like a God-given realization. I felt completely interconnected with myself and the universe for the first time. Um, It continues to be something that I go to out of spiritual questioning. So if something is really confusing me in my life, a relationship, uh, a fear comes up, MDMA is the thing that helps kind of open up the space and show me that connection. Now, you might say, I'm lucky because I've also taken all the other psychedelics, so maybe MDMA is just kind of piggybacking on the other psychedelics and and opening it up in that way. Um, But MDMA is also uh, chemically related to San Pedro cactus, peyote cactus. So it's the same kind of chemical. So while MDMA is a man-made version of that, there are true sacraments that have been practiced by indigenous folks forever that have that same kind of quality. Um, and what I can say about it is that it's a it's a lighter quality than tryptamines, which would be LSD, DMT, mushrooms. Um, I owe my life to mushrooms, but they're not they're not the most pleasant journey for me. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be displeased if I could go the rest of my life and not need to return to the mushroom medicine to ask my questions. Um, but you know, for for me, it's more what is the question in my mind now. What's my intention? What's my reason? And then usually a particular medicine will say, like, hey, I can help with that. You know, that's my specialty.
0: What percentage of the people who take psilocybin mushrooms have some form of upset stomach or herpy or weird feelings in the first 20 minutes? Roughly what percentage of people have that?
1: Wow. I wish I knew that answer. So for me, it's like all the time. In At Hopkins, I know, at Hopkins with just the psilocybin, very few. So that's interesting. I think it has to do with the actual material of the mushroom and maybe some of the other chemicals in the mushroom. Um, I met Paul Stamets once. He came to Hopkins and he said that 10% of people have, are like lacking um, a digestive enzyme or a protein that breaks down the material in mushrooms, in certain mushrooms And so he said, maybe you're just one of those people. And so your body has to do all of this extra work to get it through your gut. And if you just took psilocybin, it would be different. And I haven't done that side-by-side comparison, but um, he said 10%. So I would guess it's at least 10% and probably not more than maybe a quarter of people have a really intense gut reaction at the beginning.
0: You've heard that some people are soaking their mushrooms in... uh in lemon juice, in order to get that process that goes on in the body going earlier and try to avoid that. When you have that kind of herpy, upset kind of thing, how long does it last for you?
1: Um, Probably like a full hour.
0: Wow. It's a long process for me. That's a long process. Yeah. So
1: um, I think that people are getting smarter. I love the lemon tech idea. There's also, if you down in Jamaica now, they sell chocolate bars with mush- with mushrooms in them, yeah. organic mushrooms. And I didn't notice any stomach upset or nausea with that. Again, yeah. as a scientist, I want to understand why. But if it works, it works. So I think we're going to – if commercial businesses could contribute anything to psychedelics, it would be that. Like Let's figure out a way to make these medicines easier to ingest and more pleasant for people. You know, there's nothing much to perfect about psilocybin, but we can perfect the delivery device, I think.
0: Yeah. They're, by the way, they're, they're selling uh, those chocolate bars in Oakland, California, where they've dec- <laughs> they've decrimmed uh, uh, psychedelic uh, substances. How frequently is it safe for a person to take psilocybin?
1: Another great question. Um, some people take it, as you know, the the stamit stack. Uh, microdosing. A lot of people take very small doses somewhat regularly. Um, I know quite a few people who have migraines, cluster headaches, other kinds of headache disorders who take magic mushrooms once a month. Um, We haven't observed any reliable negative effects from too frequent dosing other than that you develop a tolerance or you get more and more open and you decide you don't want to go to your job anymore. You know, so there are real life <laughs> consequences to, to tripping all the time for me personally. And for, in the Hopkins work, we found that people really didn't need to redose dose for six to 12 months afterward. You know, if you have a really? quintessentially mind opening spiritual experience, you don't need to repeat that right away. And I think that in Roland's view and vision, that's what he was trying to go for, is what's the kind of experience that will stay with someone long enough so that they can engage in other aspects of spiritual development? They're not just kind of returning to the medicine over and over, trying to get the same experience.
0: Now, um, Michael Midhofer and Rick Doblin have both told me that uh, they recommend not more than, say, once every three months for MDMA. Um, I have interviewed uh, couples, several, by the way, who have taken MDMA as a couple two or three times a week for five to 10 years. Wow. Um, I've got one couple that I'm, uh, interviewing and staying in touch with. I think they're in their ninth year of two to three times a month. Um, you I see can my face. You-
1: I mean, I'm shocked. That's a lot. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> and by, and, and the, and both of these couples I mean, I've done some pretty decent interviewing, are definitely compass mentis. I see no signs of any kind of damage whatsoever. Uh, And they're both, uh, all four, of the two couples I'm thinking of right now are all about 80 years old. Um, Well,
1: good for them. I would, you know, I get a little bit nervous when you say that kind of frequency. So, you know, I mentioned my college days. I mean, I almost, I took myself to the brink of suicide through frequent MDMA use. So I think, so I think it depends on the person. You know, I've talked to some people who said, I just stay clear of MDMA because I do know that I will crash three days later. And then I have to dig myself out of that hole. Um, I know that Rick Doblin doesn't really believe that the post MDMA blues is, is always a thing, but I've seen it happen. And, um, I think, you know, the MAPS protocol is actually really good. So you take one dose, you wait a month or two, you take a second dose. And then maybe after a few months, you need a third dose, but then it should do you for a while. So like, in my view, I would love to see people maybe taking MDMA once a year or once every couple of years. And for most healthy people, I think that that's enough. Um, I don't know. The idea of taking it a few times a week is like... I mean, good for those, good for those people. I'm glad they figured something out that works.
0: <laughs> well, you know, it's sort of like this one, uh, uh, doctor of clinical psychology in Wisconsin, Alan Ajaya, that I interviewed, uh, he was in my first book that, uh, that Roland was in as well, psychedelic medicine. Uh, and he, he Alan has taken, uh, uh, LSD, uh, 900 times. And I said, Nine hundred times. I said, Well, are you finished? He said, No, definitely not. He's eighty at least eighty years old. I said, How so that you're not finished? He said, Richard, there's always more to learn. Wow. Just yeah. Very interesting. Well,
1: and again, it it really depends on the person. I think that um what we will find out for better and for worse, when more people start taking psychedelics, we will see the full range of reactions. So there will be people who will get addicted. I've seen it happen with 5-MeO-DMT. I've seen it happen with N,N-DMT. The shorter-acting psychedelics are easier oh, to get to yeah. get hooked on. Um, yeah, we'll the see short ride. M- right, exactly. We'll see it with MDMA. Um, mushrooms continue to be my favorite because they're very hard to get hooked on. You know, at some point they're going to show you something that you need to sit back and think about for a while. You know, yes, at some indeed. point it happens to every one of us, and it's. Um, I've come to understand that they aren't trying. And I say they, because I think they're intelligent. I think they're an intelligent being and they care about humans. Um, But they're not going to keep anything back. They're not going to only show you the things that you like or the things that you think will improve your life. At some point, they're going to say, hey, look at this. Have you thought about that? I I know you don't want to think about it, but and so a lot of, uh, I wrote a book about this, but mushrooms showed me things that I never would have spent any time trying to understand about myself. And at first I was upset, and then I came to really appreciate it.
0: That's your book that's coming out soon, isn't it?
1: Yes, in June. It's called Midnight Water.
0: Everybody want to hear that? Midnight Water, go to Amazon and take a look. <laughs> I, already, I already started taking some peeks at it. When you were taking this MDMA frequently in school, how frequently were you taking it?
1: Uh, probably once a week. There was a period of time where I was taking it once a week. And I have to say now, these are my two kind of public service announcements. One is what I was doing 20 years ago was, would be very, very dangerous now because I was taking any pill that someone sold me as MDMA, which could have had so many other things in it, but fentanyl did not exist 20 years ago. Well, it did exist, but it wasn't in MDMA. So now People have to be really careful. If you have a pill or something with white powder in it, you have to test that and make sure that it, it is what you think it is. Here, um, And so 20 years ago, what I was doing was maybe risky, maybe unsafe in some ways. I learned a lot, but I didn't have to worry about not waking up the next morning. And so the the landscape has really changed now. And you know, I don't know what would happen if I did what I did 20 years ago now as a college student. I mean-
0: yeah you don't know what you're laced with, but as a psychopharmacologist, you're quite aware of the fact that anything that has some kind of speed in it and a little amphetamine is going to result in a depression if you take it too frequently because when you go up you're going to come down i mean that's just <laughs> the nature of any kind of ski slope, right You go to the peak, you're down the other side, yep. and so there's and so the blues afterwards for some people with one experience is going to happen, but taken repeatedly, it's almost for sure you're going to go down.
1: Right. Your body needs some time to replenish the serotonin. And I think another public service announcement is that there are uh, supplements that you can take that mitigate some of these effects. So you can take vitamin B12 ahead of time. You can take magnesium ahead of time. You can take 5-HTP afterward. It helps your body. It's a precursor to serotonin. So it helps your body kind of replenish the stores of serotonin. Um, so there are more grown-up ways to do MDMA, so that you're not frying your brain. And I say that very not scientifically, but that feeling of just you know all of your serotonin has been released for the <laughs> for a while.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about the untalkable. There's so much enthusiasm amongst those of us who have been waiting. In my case, waiting for over fifty years for this renaissance. Um, there's so much enthusiasm that we're hesitant to talk about the negative effects. It's almost, you know, you'll throw a wet blanket on a nice warm party. But it's our duty as scientists uh, to do so, to tell the public everything and to really show another way to proceed with science than the way the pharmaceutical companies do when they hide their negative results. So let's go item by item, and talk about what you have learned over your career about adverse effects.
1: Sure. So, I mean, Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman has done a great job in his book, Psychedelic Handbook, about the basic physiological and psychological effects. So I won't get into those. What I will talk about are maybe four or five things that I've witnessed uh, more than once that were really scary. So the first is a woman had Um, a hypertensive episode at Hopkins on psilocybin. And she was one step in our protocol away from going to the emergency room. And there was no sign that there was anything wrong with her blood pressure ahead of time. Um, But she could have gone into stroke territory and her mother had died of a stroke. So that was a huge learning lesson for me. Some people will get into hypertensive territory even with magic mushrooms. So check your blood pressure, make sure your blood pressure is really well controlled. That's an easy one. The second one, uh, we had a couple, uh, they were mostly men who ended up getting a very high dose due to their body weight. And they went into that, um, what I call dissociative space, where they really were unaware of what was going on around them. And luckily, no one got hurt. But you could imagine if someone wasn't in a safe place or didn't have trained guides or friends with them, they could really do some damage to themselves and others. And so that's something I always remember is that if you take too much, you can go into a place where you're not able to operate your body and understand what is going on in the room around you. And again, that's kind of easy to mitigate. You just don't take so much. You know, start low and go slow. That's an arrowid mantra: start low, go slow. Um, now we're getting a little bit more tragic. So the third case, there was a depressed man in the Hopkins cancer trial. And um, he got a low dose, an almost negligible dose of psilocybin his first session, and he was upset and disappointed. Uh, He asked to leave the session, and then he ended up ending his life about 10 days later. He never came back for his second session, which could have cured his depression. Now, um, all of the correct ethics and FDA and IRB review was done of this situation, and we made some changes to the protocol. But that's still one lost life in a clinical trial. And that's devastating. And so again, what I tell people is don't expect a miracle cure your first time. Don't expect you're going to have a perfect mystical experience. You might be disappointed. Nothing may happen. You might have a nightmare experience, but that's just one experience. So make sure that you have the support in place that you can wait it out and wait another month and try again. Wait a few months and try again. Um, And there will be... Suicides that we can't prevent, and that's the reality of it, which is very, very sad. Um, okay, fourth thing: um, there have been cases of sexual assault and abuse in the context of psychedelic therapy. Doctors, licensed therapists, have harmed their patients and their clients intentionally, not by accident. And we need to, as a community, really look at that and understand: are these um, are these kinds of therapists and doctors unusual? you know, are they are like what you said, that's the kind of people who are looking to be predators? Or is this a mistake that even a well-intentioned person can make in the space of psychedelics? And it's an ongoing conversation, but it's a warning out there that, you know, you really have to think about who you're allowing to take care of yourself in this space when you're extremely vulnerable and susceptible to very intense power dynamics. And then I think the fifth one um
0: before you go to 5 I'd like <laughs> I can you can you remember 5?
1: I think so. I might okay. actually it might only be four. I'm, I I could probably think of the fifth. Okay. Oh no, I just I wanna, remember the fifth. I'll I'll remember it.
0: I want to comment about the uh uh inappropriate interaction between the therapist and the patient. Um that of course can happen in any uh occupation, but in ours it's particularly important because of the trust and their psychological effects. And there are a percentage of people who are, quote, guiding these psychological experiments with medicines, who are taking some of the medicine themselves, which they've learned to do from the shaman or women. I like to say as well, uh, it, it, down in South America. Uh, I am a pretty open-minded person. In fact, I might be considered to be radically open-minded in many ways. But I'm uncomfortable with the practitioner taking some of the medicine because of the possibility that the medicine could loosen the boundary and then result in the kind of uh, uh, experiences that you described have happened. What are your thoughts on the practitioners engaging and taking a small amount of the medicine with the patient?
1: I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I was just quickly going through my mind. And I think that in every case that I'm aware of, the practitioner was also taking psychedelics or MDMA. Uh, uh Uh So maybe not always during the session, but certainly outside of the session or maybe recreationally with the person who was also their client. So it's about boundaries. Boundaries. At At Hopkins, it would have been obscene for us to be on psilocybin while taking care of someone. It was just, it wasn't even a conversation. Of course that wasn't happening. But as soon as you get outside of a setting where there's accountability and supervision, people suddenly start experimenting. They think, oh, if I take some, maybe I'll be more open to what the person's going through. Maybe I'll see energetically what they need. I just, I think it's I'm sorry, I think it's BS. I don't think you need to be in that space to take care of someone in a kind way. I just don't. Um, you now- know the, the,
0: the, these things happen in our profession. I mean, Freud wore a beard and uh, smoked uh, a, a, a pipe. And so for years, psychologists all over the world uh, wore beards and smoked pipes. And the sh- it's true. When I was in, in graduate school, almost everybody had beards and, and there were so many and smoked pipes. <laughs> and the shaman down in, in South America have started certain practices that we have copied. And I think we've copied them ridiculously. And I'll give you another example. They do their journey work with these medicines at night. So now we have people all over the country who start giving people ayahuasca at 9 o'clock at night. I think it's ridiculous. It means at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're going into your diurnal sleep rhythm and the body is slowing down, you're on this psychedelic medicine. And I love what you all have done at, uh, at, at Johns Hopkins. You start at 8 or 9 in the morning. That sounds it like works, a normal— it's,
1: It works much better. I, always, I tell people this. I said, I know that the, the velada, the vigil, is at night. There are reasons that the healers in Mexico did it that way. And maybe we're not skilled enough to do it that way. So we're just going to do it when it works the best for us. You know, We're going to do it when people have fewer bad experiences.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing, of course, is that the uh, the, the ayahuasqueros uh, and the, 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 the some of the other shamans, also, take some of the medicine with their uh, the people that they're giving it to, and I think that's what has influenced people in this country to do the same. I, I I think it's partly that sense of I want to be open as well, but I think it's partly direct learning from the teacher, like wearing a beard and smoking a pipe. <laughs> right.
1: Well, I I continue to be extremely grateful that I learned from two amazing clinicians, Mary Casimano and Bill Richards in a way that I didn't need to ingest anything in order to be a great guide. And I'm, I'm lucky, you know, I could have learned from somebody else. Um, I could have learned bad behaviors. I could have learned, you know, bad habits. I didn't. I was very lucky. Um, but what I did learn how to do is get into a space where I could understand what someone was going through without needing to ingest something. So that's where I think the meditation practices come in. You know, it's like practice compassion, practice, you know, that transmission of energy and mind so that you know what someone is going through. and You don't need to take mushrooms to do that.
0: You know, you talked about uh, the, the, some physiological adverse effects. And I know that the researchers are all watching out for this. I know that I've talked to Tony Bosis, at, uh, at, and he's talked about the parameters that are set for blood pressure so that if a person goes outside of those above those parameters that they'll bring in medicine or take the person where they need to go just like you said you were prepared to do and he's told me that they haven't been running into people going outside those parameters but we're still watching out for them um And these are physiological, and we know that there are some physiological warnings. You might want to comment on some with MDMA and cardiovascular issues. I'd love to hear from you on that. But I also want to hear from you on what might be called adverse psychological effects.
1: Sure. Um, One of the biggest ones, and people know this in the lexicon, is paranoia. Um, When we would prepare people at Hopkins, we would say, listen— there might be a time during the session where suddenly you don't trust me. You think I'm evil. You think I'm out to get you. You can't believe I would put you through this. And you'll want to withdraw into that fear. And what I'll say to people ahead of time is say, if that happens, no matter how hard it is, I need you to tell me out loud that that is what is happening. Because as soon as you say it out loud, it breaks the spell of the paranoia. And even though you may still be feeling it, at least we're not Opposed to you. We are in it together with you. It only happened a few times, and it's the most challenging thing to deal with psychologically as a guide. Um, But if you plant that idea ahead of time, there is a part of the mind that remembers this person cares about me. They told me this might happen. They are on my side. They're not going to hurt me. And of course, that's interactive with picking the right companion because you don't want to pick a predator who's going to tell you, you know, I'm on your side, and they're really not on your side. So it's a, it's a balance like everything else, but I would say paranoia and deep fear and anxiety are the only things that I found to be challenging as a guide. Um, Anything else people can navigate deep grief, sadness, pain, um, memories, even traumatic memories. All of those terrains are navigable. It's the anxiety and fear that can really grip a person and completely derail the experience.
0: Which are the most exciting things to work on and some of the most productive things to work on? Anxiety and fear, right? Because yes. those are the two things in our daily life that give us the most trouble, right? Yeah. So, okay. How do you tell us how, some of the ways you deal when the person is experiencing high anxiety or high fear?
1: So, uh, first of all, we were trained uh, to hold the person's hand. And we would practice that with them ahead of time. And we would say, this is how I'll hold your hand. I will touch your shoulder and say, uh, you know, would you like me to hold your hand right now? You can say no. Um, this is how we'll hold your hand. We're gonna practice. I won't touch your body in any other way. So we kind of prepare people ahead of time so they were ready for that nonverbal contact. Um, that alone is very calming. It's like a child, you know? It's like the, the safe and consented um non-sexual touch can be very helpful and again i'm talking about a shoulder and a hand nothing else i know some people take it to all sorts of you know boundary pushing areas but i say that's all that that's all that's needed hold someone's hand you remind them that it's normal to be feeling what they're feeling um you don't talk about how much time there is left you don't talk about um let's try to distract you from this it's more that what's happening now is safe i'm with you uh, it's normal to be feeling what you're feeling right now and eventually this feeling will change and i'm going to be here with you until it changes now that may that may not be the thing people want to hear but it does work and eventually you, things change
0: might you take them through a breathing exercise for the uh anxiety
1: i did that with a couple people um one person who was very dissociated so so much so that anything that we had talked about ahead of time was not going to register. And so I held his hand. I even, um, this was the only time in my experience where I did cross one of those boundaries. I said, is it okay if I put my hand on your chest? Because the the hand holding was not cutting it. And he said, yes, I'm okay with that. And I had him breathe into my hand and it was very grounding for him. And it got him out of his head and into his body. And once he did that, he kind of woke up and was like, oh, I'm back. I'm in the room. And it happens in meditation too. People spiral out into these really high energetic levels and forget that they have a body. So, just kind of bringing people back into their body. Um, we talked about it with that person afterward to make sure that he was okay and we were all okay. And we addressed the fact that this was an unusual experience. Um, let's see. I'm trying to remember other times. Um,
0: By the way, I've used the hand holding and the touching of the shoulder. With people having nothing to do with psychedelic medicines, but going through psychotic episodes, uh, uh, transient psychotic episodes, and found the touch to be very effective at right. uh, at bringing them back.
1: But you can see that's also, it brings up that very important point. It's like, how are we going to train people to do this in an ethical way? If touch is one of the things that helps How do we supervise, hold people accountable, and make sure that that doesn't cross a boundary that harms someone? It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. We have to be talking about this now before you end up with every doctor and therapist you know able to give someone MDMA. Can you imagine?
0: Well, I think you said something that's extremely important, and I would like to see it echoed around the country, which is to tell the patient in advance that there might be times when I'm going to hold your hand or touch your shoulder, but I will never, ever touch anything else. And I'd like your permission now in advance to holding your hand and touching your shoulder. I think that advance notice of that is an excellent procedure.
1: Exactly. And we, we get consent again during the session. And I think that's important. If someone said, no, I don't want you to hold my hand, we wouldn't force it, even if we know it could help them. We would listen to that and say, I'll, I'm right here. I'll, I'll be here if you change your mind. I'll be right next to the couch. Um, often, Mary taught me this. We would sit on the ground. So we'd sit on a meditation cushion so that we were at the level of the, of the participant on the couch instead of sitting back in our chairs as you know, objective professionals. We would get down at their level, even lower than them, so that they understood they're in power. They're the empowered person in the room, and we're just in service to them.
0: So on the physiological basis, we talked about being on alert for hypertension and possible tachycardia. On the psychological, we talked about anxiety, high anxiety, high fear, and dissociation. Correct. What have we missed? What other possible adverse effects in your long career have you noticed? And by the way, I can tell by the way you're searching as you're looking for these cases for me that they're relatively rare. I mean, it looks like we're talking about in a, in, in decades of experience, we're talking about less than 2%, less than 1%. Is that correct? A,
1: yeah. So I probably guided over 100 sessions at Hopkins, and I'm talking about a handful of situations. And well, I think that well, Mary and Bill would probably the, say the same thing. They could easily think of five, but they couldn't think of twenty.
0: Okay, but five and a hundred is five percent. So to be, I would say five
1: percent is pretty. I think five percent is pretty
0: accurate. All right. So the public so, has a right to know that they may be dealing with high anxiety or 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 a fear, which is very manageable, and possibly the dissociation at a, perhaps a five percent level, one in twenty people. Right.
1: And now what I hear Roland Griffiths echoing in my mind, he said, but up to 30% of people can have an unpleasant experience. And I categorize that as different than an adverse experience. You can feel sad. You could feel like a bad memory came up. You could feel physically uncomfortable. You might have some nausea. That can happen in up to a third of cases. And you might say afterward, man, I don't want to do that again. But that's a little different, you know. I think that it's okay for people to feel unpleasant. That's my personal opinion.
0: <laughs> well, I think we need differentiate uh, here, Catherine, between unpleasant meaning I got to look at some ugly stuff within myself, and unpleasant meaning I feel like puking or peeing on the floor. I mean, they're two different kinds of unpleasant, right? Right. I th- the unpleasant of you know, I, there's some ugly stuff here that I've got to look at. That's part of why hopefully we're doing this because in order to make ourselves better people,
1: right? I think so. Yeah. So the, the fifth thing that I wanted to make sure to say is that it at Hopkins, people went through very specific medical screening, cardiac screening, psychological screening. We screened out for many conditions. I won't be able to enumerate all of them, but in, In the practice of the greater public taking psychedelics, we will see new types of adverse reactions due to interactions with existing medical treatments, pharmaceutical drugs in your system, past experience with other substances. So I think we just, it's better to be extra cautious at this stage. And if you yourself are on five different medications and have, you know, stage three kidney disease, maybe you know, best not to experiment on your own, like wait till there's an opportunity to have an experience with a medical doctor in a safe setting, just to make sure, you know, it's like, it's your life, you know, facing fear is one thing. I don't want someone to have a catastrophic physical experience that could have been avoided.
0: Yeah. We have two more topics before we close today. And uh, by the way, I'll, I'll, I'll make a side note here and say, that I'm really appreciative to, uh, how you're doing in this interview today. You're giving us a wealth of information, uh, doing it with, with good spirit. And, and I, I thank you for that way in advance of our close. Uh, I am really, uh, uh, I, I love the way you stay on point. You come back to the fifth point. If I interrupt you at the fourth or the third, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's uh, really well done. Okay. The two last ones. Um, success rate now what i've been telling people is because we're getting dramatic success for example with um, psilocybin and depression because we're getting dramatic success that doesn't mean we're getting 90% per success it means we're doing much better than the ssris and men and other things that are available but give us some data on actual you know, success that that we're having with these medicines
1: oh wow i i wish i had these numbers at the top of my head i might have to we might have to re-record this section so hopkins had a a paper that just came out that looked at long-term follow-up in folks with major depression yes. and they were the first ones to show that the people who achieved uh, remission and improvement in depression at you know 3 weeks, 4 weeks post session, we're still able to maintain that up to 6 to 12 months later. So that's huge. Yes. And now what I don't know off the top of my head is what percentage of people are in that category of having I been see. basically cured. Uh-huh. So Can I used f- to be I used to be suspicious of even the possibility for long-term remission cuz most of the early st- studies that had been done by pharmaceutical companies like Compass Pathways and who are funding the studies at Imperial only looked at you know a week after the session or two weeks after the session. It's like, well, of course, someone's going to feel still pretty good after one or two weeks. Um, so I guess what I would say is that the Hopkins team is leading the charge with the depression findings, and I trust what they're putting out. Um, the effects that they found even in cancer patients persisted for up to 12 months. So you know I think that there's hope and also there's going to be a percentage of depressed people that don't respond. Yes. And I'm, I'm more worried about that group. Sure. And so if, if I were one-on-one with someone and they had major depression and they had had it for years, I would say, listen, this is a possibility that it will help you, but prepare yourself that it doesn't. And what is that going to do to your mental state state? What is it going to do to your relationships? Uh, are you willing to say there's nothing wrong with me if this doesn't work for me? It doesn't mean that there's something broken in me if the miracle cure doesn't work. Um, and so each person is just going to have to address that one-on-one, because even if it's 40% in remission, we don't know if you're going to be in the 60% or the 40%. Yes. We just don't.
0: Yes, that's uh, that's very honest, and I appreciate that. Last question. I'm 84 years old. What can you tell me about experimenting at age 84 with psychedelic medicines? <sighs> <laughs> I doubt very much if your subjects have been in this age group, eh?
1: Not so many. I actually, so I asked Brian Richards. Uh, he and his father, Bill, are doing studies in with MDMA, uh, in folks with uh, cancer diagnosis, in uh, people and their loved ones. And I said, how old can someone be to be in your study? He said, we don't have an age limit. I said, you got to be kidding me. You don't have an age limit? He said, no, they just have to pass... All of the physical and psychi- psychiatric screening. So I think they had someone in their early 80s as the oldest person. But that was the first question I had: is like, how old can you be? How 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 long is it safe? I mean, some you know, the the Schulkins lived into their 90s. Anne and Sasha. Yes. Albert Hoffman lived to be over a hundred, right? So yes, um,
0: I they think might those be special are special
1: people, but.
0: Who knows? Well, it takes a special person to live that long in and of itself. No question. Statistically, we're out two standard deviations from the norm when you get to a certain number.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, uh, so Dr. Julie Holland, and I think that she'd be okay with me saying this. I asked her, I said, if someone came to you and said, is it safe for me to have a psychedelic experience? And she said, if all of the other medical parts seem okay... If the person can tolerate moderate exercise, they will survive a psychedelic experience. And I thought, okay, that's less conservative than I thought, but that's a pretty good. good
0: Oh, that's a great answer. I love that. I can't wait to talk to her in June in Denver. That'll be a lot of fun because I do an hour of aerobics seven days a week. So I guess I'm.
1: (laughs) Well, and you've already addressed the other part is like, what happens if you die? You're okay with that. Most people ver- would be freaked
0: out by that question. but No, I'm very okay with that. I can just consider that another part of living is dying. No, nothing unusual about it at all. So what's going to happen now is we're going to take a short break, and I'm going to do sort of a commercial. And while I'm doing so, I'd like you to think about what you might want to add to this interview for our listeners and readers to know about. So if you would think, you know, what we missed, and I'll now do what I'm going to do. Okay. And, <laughs> and what I'm going to do is uh, remind all of you who are listening to this to please go uh, to our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and look at the archives, because they are free, open source. We believe in it. This is to give information to all of you. And we'd like to share it. There are some great interviews, as well as this wonderful one with Catherine McLean today. So go to the website. I think there's something on the website that says subscribe. I'm not sure exactly what that means. But hit that button and subscribe, and it'll help our team. Uh, Please take a look at um, my books, uh, Psychedelic Medicine, which is interviews with the foremost scientists in the United States on psychedelics. Uh, and Psychedelic Wisdom, which you know contains stories from elders, prominent people who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who have been taking psychedelic subrosa for 40 and 50 years. I want the public to know that these people are doing these medicines. I want to counter the disinformation that the government has been putting out for the last 50 years. So take a look at those two books. An exciting new one's coming out in a few months on a whole different topic. It's called Freeing Sexuality, and I know you're going to love that one. Back to Catherine.
1: Mm. So what I learned the most from psychedelics is that if there is someone in my life who I want to change, or I wish the relationship was different, (laughs) rather than assume that they need to take psychedelics, I decide to take the psychedelic journey and investigate the parts of my consciousness that are linked up with theirs and where I can heal, let go, forgive, release, love more, be more patient, be more open. And it does help the person. I can't explain how that works. I think one day we'll have a science of this, but it's the most miraculous thing that's ever happened to me. And it's the true power of psychedelics that if there's someone in your life who's struggling, ask yourself if there's something that you can do within your own uh, consciousness, your mind, your body, to help them, and psychedelic medicine is perfectly suited to that question.
0: You are such a courageous person. Wow, you're you're willing to just let everything change, aren't you? <laughs> I probably you. got some
1: fears still left hiding in there, and they'll eventually emerge. But for now, well, yeah, you're
0: young. You've got time. You'll you'll find them. <laughs> as as Alan Ajaya said, there's always more to learn. Catherine, thank you. It has been educational. It's been delightful. It's been warm. So much I appreciate about having you with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I offer you gratitude. Thank you so much.
1: I do, and I'm very grateful as well.
0: And thank you, listeners, for being with us today on this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we're on every Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning. And in addition, of course, you can listen to the archives anywhere you are, any place you are, anytime you want to. Until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and and the pursuit of happiness.